Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to You've Got Five Pages to Tell Me It's Good, to see if a new release at my local library can indeed, in five pages, tell me it's good. Now, I've got a really small one here. Um, it has a little blurb atop that it says it is bloody, subversive, and brilliant. So immediately I'm going, well, this sounds different okay and it's called the crane husband by kelly barnhill now i am a bit uh of an ignoramus when it comes to a lot of authors but when i glanced at the back and saw that someone associates barnhill being as awesome as neil gaiman well okay let's we then we got to take a look here and oh man, we are set in the Midwest too. And being the Wisconsin person I am, this sounds like very intriguing. So we are up, up and away here with a chapter one. So no prologue, already a plus. Considering again, this book is really thin. Like this is 120 pages. So, oh, I see. Sorry, I'm glancing at Kelly Barnhill's little author blurb on the dust jacket. I recall seeing this, the 2017 John Newberry Medal um, for the girl who drank the moon. Okay, so we have someone who has some critical backing as far as the prose and, and storytelling skill doesn't always mean we jive with it because we're picky readers and working writers here. We don't always have time for <sighs> literary whatnots, but you know what? This could still be amazing. We don't know until we take a look. So chapter one. The crane came in through the front door like he owned the place. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I live in a teeny tiny farming town. I could see a critter doing that. It's We do have a fair number of sandhill cranes in our area. So, yep, they're going to sit down where they're going to sit down. <laughs> Back to it. My mother walked slightly behind, her hand buried past her wrist in his feathers. He was a tall fellow, taller than a man by a little bit. I watched him duck his head down to pass through the low doorway leading into our elderly farmhouse. His stride was like that of any other crane, all dips and angles forward and back, and yet he still seemed to carry himself with an unmistakable swagger. He surveyed our house with a leer. I frowned. I had already set the table and sliced and buttered the bread. It was stale around the edges, but so it goes. I did my best to soften it under a warm, damp paper towel for a minute or two. The canned soup bub bubbled on the stove. My brother, only six years old at the time, sat perfectly still in his chair, his eyes wide and solemn. He stared at the spindly gait of the crane as it stalked across the sitting room, its long neck hinging with each step like a metronome. The crane stopped when they reached the threshold to the kitchen. He cocked his head. 
My mother stood by his side, her hair disheveled, her sweater drifting down the outer curve of her left shoulder. She leaned her head against him. Were they waiting to be invited in? It was her house! She had never hesitated when bringing guests over before. Granted, this was her first crane. My brother's mouth fell open. I, I gotta stop for a second, because I'm with Michael here. I would like to know what's going on. <laughs> um, I admit I'm intrigued. We are simply um, just entering into this. Like we, we do not know what is really going on. Clearly there is a bit of, um, a bit of a financial struggle. We have an elderly farmhouse. They're warming up canned soup. They're stale bread, but doing the, the girl who is narrating, as she says, does her best to, um, make it edible. So the mother, it's not sounding like there's a father. Cause again, I, I didn't read the blurb of the plot. I am just reading, I glanced at the author and I glanced at a couple other people's blurbs. I did not look at what our story is. We're going in this cold. And that's okay because I am intrigued. I don't know why the woman is, the mother is bringing this crane in. There's a part of me wondering, is this actually a crane? Is she, like, operating something? Is she going to butcher it? I mean, I don't know. It doesn't sound, it sounds like it's a real crane. Yeah, it's it's alive, moving around. So I don't know. As a reader, I'd like to know more. So let's see what Barnhill is going to give us over the next page. Because we are a page in. Michael, I whispered, keep your mouth closed. I was 15 and had been in charge of Michael since he was born. He did as he was told. He trusted me utterly. Under the table, his small, warm hand found mine and hung on tight. He shut his teeth with a snap, but kept his large eyes fixed on the bird. I stared, too. I couldn't help it. It was an enormous crane. He loomed over my mother, and she was tall to begin with. She gazed up at the crane who gazed back. She giggled briefly like a girl. I pressed my mouth into a grim line. I knew what that giggle meant. That's a very ominous line. That, As a writer, that's a great line to drop into the middle of the action here because that signals to readers this whatever is coming is not good but it's in that one line we are not we don't dwell we're right back into the action here she buried her other hand in his feathers squeezing and releasing her fingers luxuriating a bit darlings my mother said I'd like you to meet someone. The crane wore a man's hat, tipped forward at what I suppose was a jaunty angle. He wore spectacles perched on his beak. 
razor sharp, I noticed right away. But his eyes, hard and black and keen, and so shiny it almost hurt to look at them, didn't peer through the spectacles at all. I had a suspicion that they were just for show. He and my mother stepped farther inside. The crane had a broken wing, bound in a splint that looked as though it had been made from two bits of wood and strips torn from one of my mother's skirts. It rested in a sling that had all the hallmarks of my mother's careful construction, intricate stitchwork, and the occasional moment of surprising beauty. He attempted to wear shoes, like a man. But his clawed feet had already pierced through the leather, and he scratched the floor with each clunk of his footsteps. The shoes, too, were just for show. And now the next paragraph is in parentheses, and then we're going to pause again. The shoes I noticed were my father's, or had been when my father was alive. Not that I had any memory of my father wearing those shoes, or any shoes for that matter. My only memories of him were from his sick room when he and I would sit for hours playing card games of my own invention, usually with names like, Who's got the highest? Or, These cards are now married, and isn't that wonderful? During which he would cheerfully let me win. I have only one memory from when he lay on his deathbed, but I do not think of it much. So, I am pausing now. Because... There's a little part of me as a reader that's annoyed we did not get those details of the crane wearing stuff on the first page. Because we're clearly looking at the crane, but we waited until now to actually describe the crane in a hat and glasses and shoes. But at the same time, as a writer, you have to balance it out. You can't spend two pages solely describing the crane because as... Barnhill is showing us there's reactions here that need to be held into account. And by pacing it, having the initial description of the crane and the mother and the siblings' reactions to returning to the crane to continue describing it, we're getting, it's almost like a camera panning the room or doing, you know, uh, split angles here. And it's it's understandable. I'm still a little irked, but as a writer, I understand what Barnhill is trying to do. You pace the details to drop it. And plus, waiting to give us those details um, makes us definitely more intrigued. Because it's one thing for a woman to just usher in a crane. The crane's dressed up. And the, the Midwestern part of me is going, how did they get the cat to stay on the crane, let alone the glasses? Like, I, I that's not even, the, <laughs> that's the weirdest part to the Midwestern me. No, it's not. But it's, it definitely continues to build on the oddities, oddity of the situation, which then propels, compels us, I should say, to continue reading on here. Plus, the parenthetical paragraph aside, helps us quickly understand why there is no father present. Might also explain a little bit about why the mom is being as she's being, because we don't know how much time has passed here. So back to it. We are now on the third page. The crane spread his good wing around my mother. Right away, I watched as that wing slid down her back and curled over her rump. 
I must have made a face because my mother instantly folded her arms and gave me a look. Is that any way? She said without finishing her sentence. I shrugged. Michael said nothing. Is he staying? I asked. I meant for dinner. Well, of course he is, my mother said, meaning I later realized something else entirely. The crane tilted his long beak down toward my mother, nuzzling her neck. The sharp tip nipped the well behind her collarbone, making a bright spot of blood. She didn't seem to notice, but the crane did, or it seemed to me that he did. He puffed his feathers in a self-satisfied sort of way. I frowned. I made another place at the table and added water to the soup to spread it out among the four of us. I pulled another bowl out of the cupboard. What happened to his wing? I asked, inclining my head toward the splint in the sling. The crane flinched at the mention of it. Surely you remember, my mother said, soothingly running her fingers along the crane's neck and not looking at me at all. I shook my head. Why would I remember? But I decided to ignore this. My mom lived in her own head sometimes. Artists are like that, I'm told. I'll, I'll pause again here. I mean, we're almost done with this first chapter. Um, but again, we are definitely getting more foreshadowing here with the mother saying that the girl should know how this wing is broken. So, you know, now I'm wondering, oh, is this a, you know, seen as the reincarnation of the father, perhaps? Um, I don't know yet. I'm excited to find out. Um, but I wanted to also comment on the rhythm of the prose. We are definitely getting a lot of short bits of lines and then even commas breaking up longer lines. So it's all in shorter bits. Like going back here, I shrugged. Michael said nothing. Is he staying? I asked. I meant for dinner. Of course he is, my mother said, comma, meaning comma. I later realized, comma, something else entirely. So we're just, we're getting these little bits, these little staggered pieces of info. But it's also a staggered rhythm because let's face it, we're all wondering what the blankety blank is going on. And it kind of almost causes us to hiccup and restart. We're, we're, we're tr desperately trying to absorb what is happening here. So this abrupt prose style fits, I feel, for this situation, especially because clearly the 15-year-old's the one that's been kind of the caregiver of the whole family. As she alludes, her artists live in their own head, like her mom. And so she's, this teenager has basically been taking care of the family. And now the mom's coming in with the screen. Well, let's find out. Maybe we'll learn one more bit yet in our last page. Um, what are we to call him? I said, more as a resignation than a question. You haven't exactly introduced us. I rummaged in the drawer for an extra spoon, not wanting to look at either of them. And in truth, I didn't particularly care about the answer. I didn't intend to call the crane anything at all. 
he'd be gone soon enough anyway, probably by morning. I don't think my mother had ever kept anyone around for more than a week, so I never saw much the I never saw, sorry, so I never much saw the point of learning the names of the people she brought home. She pulled out the chairs, the legs screeching against the kitchen floor. Sit, my love, she said to him and not to me. I ladled the soup into bowls and tossed green salads that I had grown in the yard and served those too. I hoped no one would notice the staleness of the bread. My mother sat on the crane's lap her arms draped across his back, her body obscured by his functional wing. The blood from her collarbone smeared across his gray feathers. He clucked and cooed, running his beak along her denimed thighs, picking at the fabric until it frayed. Michael and I began eating. My mother still hadn't answered the question. Michael kept his eyes tilted toward the table. I don't think he looked up once. Finally, father, she said, her hands on either side of the crane's face, her gaze peering into one black eye. She didn't look at us at all. You will call him father. Fat chance, I thought waspishly. And even though I knew enough about birds to know that they're not much for facial expressions, there was no mistaking the bird's randy, jubilant smirk. He puffed his feathers and preened. I slurped down my soup and excused myself from the table, saying I had homework to do. Which was true, but I had no intention of actually doing it. He won't last, I told myself. Of course he won't. My mother wasn't one to keep anything around, save for me and Michael. So I wasn't particularly worried about the crane. I should have been worried about the crane. And that's the end of the chapter. And yowza. <laughs> oh my heavens. Well, first of all, we get a little bit of the payoff from that foreshadowing of um, the girl here saying she knew what that giggle meant. Because we are getting the fact that apparently their mother brings a lot of people home. I don't know if that was when the dad was sick or after the dad died. That's irrelevant. She's been bringing a lot of people home. She doesn't give them a whole lot of time in the home. They're just, they're an object of fixation until they're not. And so that's why even with this absurd situation with the crane, our protagonist is not really taking it all that seriously. It's weird, but she's just accepting, well, the, the usual pattern is that it'll be gone because everybody else has been gone. But we again have that little bit of foreshadowing here. We're getting a sense of um, the mom calling him father. So again, is this the dad? I don't know. Um, that the bird is showing facial expressions uh, that the mother's blood has even come on his feathers. And I, the, that almost sounds like we are getting a little bit of an atonement thing here. We're getting a little bit of a sacrificial, of a marking. Something something is very special about that blood schmear. And the foreshadowing at the end of the chapter, too. That last line, that's great. That is a great little mark for, as a writer, that's awesome. So I wasn't particularly worried about the crane. I should have been worried about the crane. That's wonderfully done. 
I know that sounds repetitious, but no, nope. It it's showing the the <laughs> the hindsight and again more foreshadowing to hook us and compel us to keep reading. And I and I I'd like to. Again, it's only 120 pages, so this this is not a long thing, but it's definitely got a ton of fascinating promise to it. And um I'm stoked to find out more. I, I want to see, is this crane the father? Is the mother doing something to bring the father back? We, what is going on? I don't know. So I know I've gone a little bit over my time, but I'm excited about this one. And if you're looking for something unique and different, something that's a bit, fan, well, as, as the back said, the fantastical, almost like a, a contemporary fairy tale kind of feel. The, this uh, Kelly Barnhill's The Crane Husband would probably be for you. And then we'll see what's on the new release shelves next week. So until then, read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>